Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth Episode 4, Constantine, Part 2 Welcome back. When we left Constantine, he had just completed the conquest of the Roman Empire. Having won the war, he was now faced with the harder task of winning the peace. He had envisioned Christianity as a uniting force, something that would tie the disparate peoples of the empire together. As there was now one emperor, there would be one church, with himself at the head. Paganism, weak and dying, could be tolerated. Christian heresies could not. But instead of a unified religion, he found a faith almost hopelessly divided by factions and torn apart by schisms. The problem was that Christianity, in its infancy, like many mystery religions, lacked an official written orthodoxy. In the first century, when Christ's words were in living memory, any conflict of interpretation could usually be cleared up by those who actually remembered him. As time went on, however, and those initial generations died off, more and more heresies began to pop up. The church tried to clarify things by holding local meetings of bishops called synods, and by issuing statements of belief called creeds, but no sooner had one issue been settled than another would pop up. So the situation stood in 320, when a young prester of Alexandria named Arius threatened to permanently split the Christian world. His doctrine was simple. God the Father had created Christ, so though he was a perfect man, Christ was not God. Arius was excommunicated at a synod attended by about a hundred bishops, and he fled to Nicomedia, where he was warmly greeted by the emperor Licinius himself, and a synod called by the local bishop Eusebius overwhelmingly endorsed him. Feeling much stronger, Arius returned to Alexandria and demanded to be reinstated. The bishop refused, and rioting broke out in the streets. It's important to remember at this point a fundamental difference between Byzantine society and our own. Theology was not an esoteric subject for theologians. It was a passionate concern of everyday citizens. Slogans were written on the walls, jingles were sung, and speeches were made in the marketplace. And Arius, unlike some theologians, was quite a clever songwriter, devising tunes to be whistled or sung in the streets. And so by 323, with Licinius dead and Constantine in control of the empire, what had started out as a local dispute now threatened to rip apart the empire Constantine had fought so hard to unify. His first attempt at mediation was almost painfully naive. He wrote a letter to both factions saying, Having inquired faithfully into the origin and foundation of your differences, I find their cause to be of a truly insignificant nature, and quite unworthy of such fierce contention. It was wrong ever to propose such questions as these, or to reply to them when propounded. Such divisions, however, were too deep to simply be papered over and ignored, and Constantine soon realized that a more drastic solution was called for. The main problem was the local synods. Arius had been condemned by some and accepted by others. The obvious answer then was to call the synod to end all synods, one of such tremendous authority that both sides would accept its rulings. And so in 325, the first great council of the church was held at Nicaea. The council dealt with many issues, setting the date of Easter, for example, but from the beginning, the main concern was the description of Christ and his relationship to God the Father. The debate hinged on one word. The Orthodox bishops wanted homoousios, meaning of one substance, while the pro-Aryan bishops wanted to insert an I, changing it to mean of like substance. Constantine, who throughout the council played an integral part, 
was able, by both persuasion and intimidation, to get both sides to agree on of one substance, pointing out to the Arians that it could be interpreted in its divine and mystical sense. In other words, you could interpret it however you wanted to. Arius was officially condemned and his written works were burnt. For Constantine, it had been a tremendous success. Not only had the matter been decided, but most of the votes had been unanimous. He had unified both the Eastern and Western churches and established his own moral superiority over it, linking church and state together with bonds that would last the next thousand years. The only thing that remained was a capital worthy of the new age. The obvious choice was Rome. He had started a massive building program there designed to make the city worthy of its new rank, complete with sumptuous basilicas and a gigantic statue of himself near the Forum. He hadn't set foot inside the gate since his victory at the Milvian Bridge 13 years before, but what better place to celebrate his 20th year in power than the Eternal City? So in January of 326, Constantine, his wife Fausta, and two of his sons left for Rome. The trip could hardly have been worse. Part of the problem was Constantine's eldest son, Crispus. The young man had proved himself to be a brilliant general, popular both with the army and the people. Where Constantine had his hundreds, so the saying went, Crispus had his thousands. When the party reached Sirmium in February, the emperor suddenly launched into a frenzy of killing. Arresting Crispus and his half-brother for reasons never made entirely clear, he had them both executed. Then, without warning, he had his wife Fausta killed in her bath. Rumors of an affair or a plot on Constantine's life swirled around, but were never entirely answered. He arrived then in a foul mood, and seems not to have bothered to keep his low opinion of the city to himself. The Romans, for their part, made their feelings equally well known, and after consecrating the brand new Basilica of St. Peter's, he left the city, never to return. Constantine had long been building a city in the east, though at first merely commemorative, but his disastrous trip to Rome seems to have convinced him to make it something more. The city that would become Byzantium was already a thousand years old when Constantine first saw it, and though later legends would grow up about its divine origin, he would have needed little guidance to see its worth. The empire had many enemies, and the most formidable ones were clustered on its eastern border, the Sarmatians, Ostrogoths, and especially the Persians. Rome was far away, too hot and malarial in the summers, and too vulnerable to attack. More importantly, intellectually and economically, it had become a bit of a backwater. The new progressive Hellenistic thinking was in the east, and in an age of dwindling resources, the richer eastern provinces could not be ignored. Constantine's new city, therefore, would be something more than a commemorative city. It would be the new Rome, the new center of the world. According to legend, Constantine himself traced out the length of the walls with his spear. When his courtiers questioned their tremendous length, he is said to have replied, I shall continue till he who walks ahead of me bids me stop. But whatever the truth, he decided it would be a large city, more than six times the size of its predecessor, with walls so thick that it took the guns of the modern world to breach them. He announced that its consecration would coincide with his silver jubilee and construction began at a frenetic pace. The focal point of the city, and the entire Roman world, was the million, or first milestone. It was made up of four triumphal arches forming a square and supporting a cupola, above which was placed the most venerable Christian relic, the True Cross, recently brought back from Jerusalem by Constantine's mother, St. Helena. 
All distances in the empire were marked from this point, making it, in effect, the center of the world. To the east of it, he built the first great Christian church of the new capital, St. Irene, dedicated to the peace of God. A few years later, it would be joined and overshadowed by St. Sophia, the Holy Wisdom, perhaps the most impressive church ever built. Of course, no Roman city would be complete without a hippodrome, with an imperial box which gave direct access to the vast imperial palaces. At each end of the track, there was an obelisk and the serpent column made by the Greeks in 479 BC to commemorate their victory over the Persians. A broad avenue led from the Hippodrome to the New Forum paved entirely in marble and crowned with a hundred-foot column of porphyry brought all the way from Egypt. Within the base of this column was a strange collection of artifacts. You get the feeling that Constantine is hedging his bets again, some pagan relics and some Christian ones. The hatchet Noah had built the ark with, the baskets and loaves with which Christ had fed the multitude, and the figure of Athena brought back by Aeneas from Troy. Seated on top of the column was a tremendous statue of Constantine himself holding a scepter and an orb, in which had been placed another piece of the true cross. While nothing of the forum or the relics remain today except the burned ruin of the column itself, you can get a glimpse of what it must have been like in the city of Jerash in northern Jordan. Constantine's forum was almost certainly based on this one. The new Rome could not be built or furnished in a day, so Constantine ransacked all the cities of his empire for works of art to adorn it. He especially targeted religious statues, as this had a dual effect. In addition to creating an instant city, by setting up pagan religious works in public, unconsecrated sites, he was able to strike a telling blow at the old religion. You can still go today down into the great cisterns of Istanbul and see numerous Medusa heads on the bottom of columns flipped over to show their impotence. On Monday, May 11, 330, the city was formally dedicated to God the Father. The name was officially Nova Roma, but the new citizens, with some coaching, spontaneously christened it Constantinople. The celebration included both pagan and Christian elements and lasted for 40 days, the culmination of which saw Constantine take mass at the high altar of St. Irene while the pagan population prayed for his prosperity in their official temples. Once again, he's hedging his bets. A new era had begun, and the city had grown quickly. Just 12 years before, it had been a tiny village, but within a century, it would boast, in the words of the historian Gibbon, a school of learning, a circus, two theaters, eight public and 153 private baths, 52 porticos, five granaries, eight aqueducts, four spacious halls for the Senate or courts of justice, 14 churches, 14 palaces, and 4,388 houses, which for their size or beauty deserve to be distinguished from the multitude of plebeian habitations. Just 12 years before, it had been a tiny village, but within a century, it would soon become the greatest city of the empire. It was not just the new capital that had grown, however. Aside from a number of cities he had founded and named after himself, churches had popped up all over, mostly due to his mother, Helena. At the spry age of 72, she had set out to the Holy Land, founding churches along the way and finding the true cross. She built the Church of the Nativity at Bethlehem, one on the Mount of Olives, and most importantly, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre at Jerusalem. She died in the Holy Land, the first recorded Christian pilgrim, and the founder of a tradition that continues to this day. 
Constantine himself, on the other hand, at the height of his power, was beginning to give way to a religious megalomania. It was a short step, after all, from being God's representative on earth to being a god himself, and he increasingly had himself portrayed as the equal of Christ. At this point, an old problem resurfaced and threatened to undo all of his hard work. Never overly interested in doctrinal subtleties, he allowed himself to be convinced by whoever had his ear at the moment. Arius was always more popular in the East than the West, and he seems never have taken his exile too seriously. Remaining friendly with several of the emperor's family and friends, he convinced Constantine to reinstate him. But the Egyptians had elected a firebrand named Athanasius, who flatly refused. Constantine called another council of the church, but when it became apparent that only pro-Arian bishops were going to show up, Athanasius took the opportunity to flee to Constantinople. He was deposed in his absence and banished to Trier, but when Arius was appointed, the people of Alexandria, led by St. Anthony himself, rioted in the streets. Constantine backed off his decision and recalled Arius to inquire into his beliefs, and it was during these inquiries that Arius died in a particularly gruesome fashion. Constantine's main desire was to achieve unity within both the church and the state, and he may have come close to it if he had just stuck with his original decisions. Instead, he made the situation even worse by constantly vacillating between the two camps. Athanasius's exile was to last beyond Constantine's death, and the spiritual unity he craved has still not arrived. In the last years of his life, Constantine raised his three sons and two nephews to the rank of Caesar. He was deliberately attempting to reduce the Caesar's prestige. With advancing age, he was becoming ever more convinced of his own uniqueness, even compared to members of his family. Effective power was reserved for him alone. This, however, gave him an almost unbelievable workload, which his declining health made very difficult to sustain. In the early months of 337, he prepared a campaign against the Persians, but, feeling ill, he ordered his tomb prepared and was baptized. He waited until the last possible moment to be baptized to hedge his bets, because he believed that baptism would wash away all of his sins. Ironically enough, though, he was baptized by an Arian heretic. He died on the 22nd of May, after a reign of 31 years, the longest since Augustus. His body was put in a golden coffin and draped with a purple shroud. He had taken on the title Equal of the Apostles, and in death he planned to take it one step further. He had twelve sarcophagi placed in the Church of the Holy Apostles, and had his own coffin placed in the center. Not only an apostle, but apparently the symbol of the Savior in person. His death even more than his life, signaled the final end of Diocletian's system. He had left no guide to who would succeed him, so for a while the government continued in his name until the army announced that it would only accept joint rule by the three sons. As for his final resting place, like much of the new city, too much had been built too quickly. Walls were too thin, foundations not solid enough. Within 25 years the great golden dome of the building was in danger of imminent collapse, his body was moved to a nearby church for safety, and though it stood for another 200 years, the Church of the Holy Apostles was completely demolished and rebuilt by Justinian. Of the twelve apostolic sarcophagi and Constantine's own magnificent tomb, nothing remains. So does Constantine deserve to be called great? He was, after all, an arrogant man whose greatest military victories were against his own colleagues, he was unsuccessful at unifying the Christian church, 
and probably made it worse by constantly vacillating between the two sides. His blinding pride prevented him from sharing power, even when he could clearly no longer handle the responsibilities of running the empire. And this inability to let anyone else share his power would lead to years of unnecessary bloodshed among his successors. And yet, I think he does deserve his title. Certainly there were greater, more likable men who sat on the Byzantine throne, but none would have the lasting effect that he did. Ironically, for all his brutality and megalomania, the faith he professed would become the binding force of his empire for the next thousand years. It would also have an incalculable effect on the culture of the East, and continues to impact it to this day through the Orthodox Church. But as great as his direct influence was on the East, his indirect impact on the West may have been even greater. Byzantium stood as a great bulwark protecting an underdeveloped Europe against the onslaught of Islam. The walls of Constantinople forced the armies of the Prophet to take the long route through North Africa and Spain, and by the time they were stopped at the Battle of Tours, Europe had emerged from its dark ages and was ready to face them. Had Constantine chosen his city less well, or have been more ambivalent in his endorsement of Christianity, the history of the world would be vastly different. For this reason alone he deserves his title, and it's a fitting tribute that the last emperor to rule in his city also bore his name. In the next lecture, we'll look at the empire he left behind, the chaos in his wake, and the unlikely rise and tragic fall of Julian, the last of the pagan emperors. 12 Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.